Hello and welcome to Stubbornly Optimistic, the podcast all about people. And in today's episode, we talk to Anthony Lachlan. The segment you're about to hear was quite fun to record. Um, Anthony and I decided to get some pizzas in and just generally mull over stuff. So it's a bit informal and it's kind of just a let's see where the conversation takes us. And we talked about all sorts of things from writing, about linguistics, the love of language, um, some smatterings of anthropology, and also lampshading from a fourth wall break. Have a listen to the upcoming episode all about storytelling and the mechanics of language. Should be an interesting one, guys. On today's episode, we have... Ah, I should have asked this earlier. Huh? Correct me if I'm wrong. Pronouncing your second name is Laughlin? Lachlan, technically. Lachlan, right, okay. But like, you know, I've had every variation. A lot of people tend to say Laughlin. And we're going to have a chat about... What did we decide we were going to talk about? Philosophy, yeah? Linguistics is better. Linguistics, I mean, I can, yeah. I can, flirt with, I can flirt with philosophy a little bit, but... Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about li- linguistics then. So, from the first f- first principles, then, for someone that doesn't know anything about that, what is it? It's the study of language. It's the study of language. Mm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I got interested in it at sort of uni, and I've kept it up ever since, even though I sort of dropped out, which is probably why I'm. It's a good subject for optimist Cali because it's it's like, it's not something I have a qualification in, but it's something I know a fair bit about. Right. And I've kept doing it even though I basically, well, I no two ways about it. I, I failed. I dropped out. So it's, um, it might be interesting for your listeners to hear a tale of someone who's retained a love of something yeah. after kind of abandoning it. It's not as straightforward as that. We could probably go into a bit of it later because uh-huh. my opinion of English as a subject isn't always rosy. Um, because English studies, there's some elements of it that I kind of have truck with, which we might get to. But um, it's a good subject to immerse yourself in and sort of teach you really about how change ain't bad. So, pairing that back, I mean, all of that is... I'm interested in unpicking all of that, if you're you're willing. Mm -hmm. Um, But you've managed to... I guess you've retained the love of the subjects while falling out of love with the academic side of it sort of i mean it, I, still, I mean it was more uh, part of the reason why i left was basically just because well i didn't realize at the time but um it was a point of stress really i was close to sort of a nervous breakdown and didn't really re- realize it mm. and because it took me so long to get to uni because i didn't go the traditional route of GCSEs and A-levels, because I did well in my GCSEs. Yeah. Uh, both the estimations of quite a few people who knew me, actually, 
and sort of went into A levels initially. But I was going to, I wanted to be, I actually wanted to do geology was one of my abiding passions. I'm still interested in that as well. Actually, I've kept an interest in everything I've ever wanted to do. Um, I think that's probably the reason why I'm quite a jack of all trades rather than. It's like I know a fair bit. I know quite a lot about linguistics, but I, I, I'm barely touching the sides really compared to what's out there. But um, when I was at sort of um, when I was sort of A levels, I dropped out of it very quickly because physics was just too difficult for me. Mm. I mean, it was basically a lot of maths, and I suck at maths. It took me it took me three goes to get um, to get GCSE maths to C. Right. Um. I don't know what the equivalent with the numbers would be these days. I'm told it's a six. Right. Um, from my, my, I know an eight. I know an eight and eight, I think. Yeah. But um, so yeah, that would make sense, I guess. Um, so but, did you, were you a mature student then? By the time you get yeah, I did. I, I did access. I did the access course. I basically waited until I was nineteen, which is the youngest you can be to do an access course. Right. And then uh, I went to uni. Um, I ended up doing anthropology. Yeah, we've spoke at about that. Durham Uni for a year. Well, it wasn't anthropology, it was called Human Sciences. Right, okay. And it was sort of a... They were experimenting, but it was at the Stockton campus. And when mm-hmm. they, they still did uni courses at, back then. That's, yeah. It's freaking me out that it's 10 years ago now. Like, but, um, <laughs> Welcome to the world of change. Yes, change. yes. <laughs> uh, not all change is good. And uh, I... Uh, I've learned more in that one year than I think I've learned in the rest of my life. But mm. I, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't focused enough to really thrive at Durham. Right. I think they expected far too much of me and didn't get anywhere near what they required. Mm-hmm. But also, like, I had a bit of bad luck. I mean, my laptop died with quite a lot of my work in it. And, like, computer existence failure is still not a valid excuse at any university mm. even though it's probably one of the most common occurrences it's my own stupid fault for not backing it up but um yeah and for buying an acer computer as well actually <laughs> uh, that's another story but um we've just had the uh, conversation about apple versus microsoft but yeah i switched mm. i switched over to teesside after i dropped out of the year uh, and i thought for whatever reason that they wouldn't let me in if i did not have some sort of connection to what I did. Right. So as I did anthropology, I did English with sociology. Right. And at the end of my first year, after I passed my first year, I uh, dropped the sociology completely. I was going to say, because sociology is if almost you... opposite to anthropology. Well, it's not so much that it's an opposite. It's just that it's a feeble imitation. <laughs> it's You're sitting on the fence there again, mate. No, I, I'm very much not. I, I've, I've got a very sort of, I can do a sort of rubbish joke, and I think I will, because it will tie into language that we can talk about later. But there's um, a joke. There's a physicist, uh, a physicist, a biologist, and a sociologist, and they've all been to a lecture at the theatre. And it's sort of a, maybe an academic conf- conference or whatever. And they're taking a shortcut through an alley and they find a dead body. Mm. And the the uh, physicist goes, that's uh, a mass of approximately 17 stone and it's not in motion. I mean, they wouldn't they wouldn't say stone for mass, but, you know, I'm not all fair with uh, 
kilograms. It, it will do. Yeah. And uh, the 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 biologist the biologist goes, "You stupid bugger! It's a bo- It's a dead body." And the sociologist keeps on walking. And the physicist turns to the biologist and says, "Oh, what's wrong with him?" And he's like, "Oh no, he's he's looking for a group." Um, sociology is sociology is a nice sort of in theory thing, but the thing is, is that like if you've done anthropology, sociology just feels incomplete. It's not that it's yeah. a bad subject; it's just that anthropology, like, like if I was to compare it, sociology is about reading about the moon landings. In a textbook, mm-hmm. anthropology is going. Yeah, it's yeah. just once you've once you've been, you don't need to read the textbook. Yeah, I think I think for me because I'm I'm in a, a situation peculiarly. Um, is that a word peculiarly? Um, where it is now. It is now. You heard it here first. For, for, oh, hey, first. talking talking is hard. Yeah. I tell you, especially when you've had Pepsi. Yeah. And if anyone's hearing any eating sounds, it's because we've got duck. And chicken wings on the go as well. Um, so apologies. You mispronounced both of those as well. <laughs> what? No, I did not. I didn't pronounce duck and chicken wings wrong. How can you pronounce duck and chicken wings wrong? Need to watch our pronunciations. Uh, it's, um... Why is pronunciation such a hard word to pronounce? That's the other thing that I want to know. Um, where was I going? Yes, anthropology and sociology are two things that I'm currently kind of looking into in terms of some studied bits and pieces that I'm doing as well. And... I kind of like anthropology because coming from a from a scientific background, it it ties in with a logical framework, whereas sociology tends to be, and I don't know if you agree, but I I, I think I think it tends to be just a tad woolly, on occasion. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, an, I did like I did like some of the things. I mean, like there was um, there was one really good uh, lecturer that I had who, who taught this the the politics side of it. And said, "If you're not cynical by the end of it, already you'll be cynical by the end of this." And <laughs> I already was cynical, so it, it was wasted on me, but I still retained it. Um, <laughs> and you can tell I retained it by the fact that I cared more about the fact that she'd said that than the actual material that was in it, because it was just kind of self-fulfilling for me. But, um, but like, the thing with anthropology that I've, I've always sort of loved about it is, is that it's all about sort of watching. Mm. and actually paying attention and trying to figure people out and it's a great subject for that and it it the thing is is i would say if you're ever going to do anthropology as a subject and i heartily recommend it do it at durham because you start the problem with doing it at durham is is that you get probably i would say anthropology at its best because you you're encouraged to see both of it whereas some universities will do biology biological anthropology and some will do social anthropology yeah very few do both of them together, and I think Durham's kind of peculiar in its insistence on having both, right? And teaching both, and giving you a choice, and even giving you a choice to collaborate, which is unusual because mm. most universities don't, right? And I think that's it's it's a good experience, but good luck getting into Durham. Um, <laughs> it is true. I was fortunate because I was a mature student, um, and they basically had the course going twice, which is how I managed to get on it. But to be fair, mature students, the bar drops very significantly. If you ever want to go to university older in life, it's much easier to do. And you might think that's kind of weird because why would they let you in with less standards than the younger kids? Where it's the, the fact is, as you've gone out, you've lived life. Yes. Every university yeah. seems to appreciate that as a, as a virtue, which it kind of is. And the other thing is, is that chances are, if you're a bit older, 
you've done the partying thing that you've yeah. done all of the distractions yeah. that distract the younger ones with the more qualifications for finishing it. <laughs> and the other thing is, if you look at the statistics, matures are much more likely to succeed. Yeah, and I mean, I've, a I've lot of matures go away with firsts. I've done, and the, it's not yeah. surprising. I've done the the, the, the first degree was uh, many years ago now, ninety three to ninety seven. So we're getting into twenty one years since I graduated, and I was a state sponsored drinker back then. That was my kind of title, um, and I've used that description on a number of occasions. So I completely get it, and I think I think that. <clears throat> That point of, you know, not all knowledge is qualified knowledge, uh, but it's still relevant and it's still knowledge at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of brings me rather neatly and unplanned back to the idea that you've still got these interests and the knowledge and bits and pieces that you picked up, mm. um, despite not getting the, the academic qualification. Is there any bits that you think from, because from, you, you've had the freedom to kind of explore the subject with no constraints? So you've gone where your interest has took you. And is there any bits that sort of drop out from that that you think well, yeah, that would be somewhere that you'd want to go maybe maybe in the academic sense later on? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, always. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing is, is I've always really wanted to teach. Uh-huh. And I'm still not against the idea of doing it one time. I keep telling you you should. Mm. Keep telling you. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is it's, it's money, really. Yeah, it's it, that's the biggest problem, and yeah. I think, r- strictly speaking, like, I don't really want to make this too political, but like, <laughs> Go on. current government. Let's just leave it there. Current government. I won't. I won't. I won't swear and use the T word. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> it's all right. I'll swear and use the T word with my very distinct Northern accent, just to put that into more con- context. Um. You know, like has made it has made a very distinct, quite obvious barrier, in. I mean, you could you could almost sort of correlate, um, your likelihood of getting into higher education, with the in- inherent value of the property that you were born in, mm. or that you live in. There's still very much a. I mean, I think basically because uh, an awful lot of people say that they make the that labour makes the exams easier, and that's a possibility. I, I might have just been lucky and been able to get into university, but I mean the fact is is that's the direction that Britain's going. Britain is a service economy. We need more people who have got these elaborate qualifications, and the fact is is we've got a society that thinks they're worthless. That's mm. the irony. Mm. We live in a we live in a society that's constantly crying out for people with degrees, and what we want is people with experience and degrees, mm-hmm. or people with experience that will make up for not having a degree. Yeah. So in the in an, in an, in an essence, whilst I very limited very much limited the speed at which I could ascend to high paying jobs, and I'm just doing a basic cush a, a quite cushy, but you know. A, low end healthcare job and that's that's my job that's what i do and i do love it but it's um you know it's not what i wanted to do really and it was just kind of what i was forced to do because i needed to go out and i needed to make money mm. and the fact is is that i'm stymied from going back into university even though i probably have the aptitude i mean the fact was is i was probably too young really i was still distracted and i, I mean i'm not the best organized person at the best of times um, I've never been very good at organising myself. I'm clever enough to get the degrees. I'm just not organised enough to get them. And 
kind of it pisses me off. But then I think that's a trait that that lack of organisation. I mean, there's plenty of memes out there where people, um, messy people, are supposed to be more intelligent, for one, and creative sorts are, you know, procrastinators and messy people, etc. And and not necessarily yeah, the organised type. I'm creative. The the thing is, is like creative. well, for the thing is, is like there's I've I've got a few sort of things that I've got going for me, and one of the things is is writing. And, like, it's more in terms of prose than essays. I mean, I can write a decent essay, but the, f- the funny thing is is I can write a pretty decent functioning essay from a blank piece of paper without a great deal of effort. And mm. there will be people who are mature students right now who are doing essays right now, and they're probably, if they're listening to this, they'll be cursing the universe <laughs> that this sort of <laughs> smug note git is sitting here going, oh, I find it very easy to write an essay. Um, when they're sort of pouring over it, just desperately trying to sort of fit it in. And that's not to say that I always got really good grades for my essays. No, that's not necessarily the case. Um, I always struggled with finding ways to cite stuff, but I'm quite good at writing like style. I mean, prose-wise, I can do a very good chapter of a story in a couple of hours just by stream of consciousness and not really mm-hmm. thinking about what I'm doing, just doing it. Mm-hmm. And that is not i would say unique yeah. by any stretch of the imagination but it's not common mm. so some people have to pour over it for hours just to get a couple of sentences yeah how do you how do you get around the editing then because um you know you edit three times don't you once once for your audience that you like that like you once for an audience well this that is my problem you, is i tend to your, i tend to edit reason. almost immediately but the problem with that is is that you immediately run out run out of steam mm. My advice to anyone writing novels is to not think about editing until you've finished it. Right. Whereas I'm keen to edit and change and fiddle with stuff that I've already written when I haven't even got a book. Right. And that is what has held me back from finishing anything. And also, I'm quite good at other idea syndromes. Mm. One of my problems is, is that I've got an overdose of ideas. I'd be a bit brilliant person to sit in a room where lots of other people finished things and I just came out every now and then. I just... There was just like, they sort of taught in shop and I'm just sort of sitting on a little mat playing with some cubes in the corner, juggling them about. And then occasionally I'd just suddenly start twitching and then yell out some random words <laughs> that were a semi-coherent idea and then a bunch of other people would go, that's brilliant, and make it. You are the ideas that person. I would be the ideas person in the room. I'm not yeah. so much good at finishing things. That's so, always my problem. But you, are you, you're quick to start a project. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. But the problem is, is I'm... As I'm good at starting projects, I'm good at starting more projects. <laughs> and this is the problem. I can't really confine it down to one or two. So it's getting getting those those finding those one or two projects and bits and pieces. What have you what have you done over the years to kind of inform because you have done larger scale projects and you have finished stuff. So Ish. how how have you how have those more finished projects come about? I think, well, funnily enough, I, I, this is a while ago now, but um, I met the Literary Fund fellow uh, for the Teesside Uni, who at the time um, is a semi-well-known author, uh, Jonathan Tullock. Um, he's a local Manchester writer. Not Manchester, but Teesside. Oh, bloody hell. Um, I'm losing, losing the plot, but um, he he... He wrote the novel, I think, that was... The, there's a, 
film made about Bendit like Beckham, I think. It was oh it? yes. But he wrote the novel for that that inspired the and the, they made the film based on the novel. Right. So he wrote the novel <clears> and he really really liked my writing. Okay. I would say I, I looked like he actually got goosebumps. Um, but I've sat on my laurels ever since. I've never finished right. a novel. Was but that... he, he, he told me this one sort of line, which is just stuck in my head, and it kind of describes my situation. And he just went, Ant, you have to concentrate on the elephants rather than the fish eggs. Yeah. Um, and that is kind of me in a nutshell, because I just constantly and constantly and constantly find a better idea. I've honed it down to two. Right. Um, one is sci-fi and one is fantasy. Yep. And I'm currently in the process of sort of coming up with new ideas for the sci-fi one. And in the meantime, I'm also semi-working. So basically, I've decided the best way to proceed is to do two. Do those, do those uh, two. But to make part. them, to prioritise them above everything else and not right. think about anything else until they're finished. Okay. And the only stumbling block I've got at the moment is that the sci-fi one is sort of happening... Um, instinctually where I'm sort of just mulling over the ideas and coming up with more ideas as I go along yeah and I've started to define plot and get characters um, the other one I've decided to be to try and make it feel more authentic so I've kind of created a fictional uh, sci-fi not sci-fi fantasy land that is sort of vaguely historical I suppose it's kind of like R.R. Martin's thing where it's soft on the soft on the scythe, the fantasy tropes uh -huh. and more historical Yeah. although I'm definitely a lot less soft than he is it's just they're not as noticeable like I still think I'm probably going to have dwarfs and elves but they're yeah. going to be elusive you're not going to see right. them okay. if at all Yeah. and they're going to be mythical because um, it's very very hard anyone that's writing in that fantasy realm I, I any writing that i've done has been non-fiction um but i guess anyone that's writing in that fantasy realm it's very hard to not try not inadvertently recreate the stuff that you've read you know who people try and write a new book and come up with a rehash of the lord of the rings for example well i've you been know, quite conscious Earth. of that because the thing that i worry about because it's a sort of i'm trying to do sort of fantasy detective story mm-hmm and it's very hard in that case to not be very much like, and I'm going to murder this name. Um, I'm going to have a go at it. Mm -hmm. um, Andre Sapkowski, I think, is the name. Or it might be Andre or something. The, 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 his first name is difficult to read. Right. I've never really looked into how you're supposed to pronounce it. Okay. But um, basically, he's the, he, everybody knows him. Yeah. Without knowing his name, because he's the writer of the Witcher novels. Oh. And every, and a lot of people in geeky, yeah. anybody in the geeky realms yeah. knows about the Witcher, even if it's just through the computer games that made him famous. I'd kind of like to read the novels, I think. I've got a couple of them somewhere. Um, but it's hard to avoid sort of comparisons to that, because the Witcher kind of does that a little bit. Mm. Um but I'm not really entirely worried about that. I mean, I wish I could remember the exact quote, but like, basically Terry Pratchett made a very, very good defense of the cliche. Is it because one of the things he said was, "Is it's a cliche for a reason? It's because mm. everybody uses it, mm. and everybody likes to see it." Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's you know, 
people worry too much about being original. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk story for a bit, because at least because we, we, we said from the offset that this was going to be about linguistics. So yeah. let's try and crowbar a bit in. So um, I've got a feeling that it's called Seven Basic Plots. Right. I haven't read it in a long time, but it's, it's, a, it's a book about how stories are more or less the same. Right. It's like, well, I've got a guitar there. There's a guitar. You can see you can see a guitar in the room we're in. It, yeah. it, it, if you can, you're either music, musical or you've got problems. Um, <laughs> but, like, a guitar's got a series of... It's got a finite number of notes that it can play. Yes. But there's so many combinations. It's like there's a little factoid. I'm sure it was on QI, uh, but there's a little factoid about how if you shuffled a def- deck of cards, the likelihood is, is that de- that... that that combination of cards is unique in human history mm-hmm. because of the um, just the sheer number of variables involved. Yeah. And that's just a deck of cards. That's 52 cards. Mm. Each one of which could be, it's 52, 52 well, it's, factorial. It's, yeah, it's, it? that, it's that escalation thing. It's yeah. like the rice, the grains of rice on a, on a chessboard. Yeah. It's how it escalates so quickly. Because. Mm. Um, I mean, I won't bother telling that story because it's quite well known. But um, it's it things really, really snowball really quickly. So, but the basic thing is, is that there is basically nine basic plots to a story, and there's an awful lot of different kind of things. Now, the thing is, is how stories work is, is that they're a two-way thing. Uh-huh. You've got the reader and you've got the writer, and they've both got expectations. Yeah. And you sort of try to meet in the middle. Mm-hmm. That's the basic job. Now, people seem to think that you can be original in that, and you can, but the problem is, is whenever you do that, it's going to be praised by very arty, art-interested parties, yeah. and generally not popular. Right. Why is it that more people read Fifty Shades of Grey than James Joyce's... No, it's... Um, I think it's Finnegan's Wake, but I could be wrong. But anyway, in one of uh, James Joyce's novels i've i've tried to read it before and i just give up uh, and i mean even i'm sort of geeky about language and i couldn't be bothered so if i can't be bothered you probably won't be bothered either but it, it's got like a series of sort of languages it's got a dream language in it that joyce made up and he uh-huh. doesn't know he didn't know how it worked he got intimately involved with it but the thing is is it's, it's kind of original in a way mm-hmm. even though it's not right because um i mean we're getting close to what i was contemplating doing as my dissertation actually so this works quite well okay um but um the thing is is that he created this language the unique bit of it is the incomprehensible bit because this is the thing about language it's about what's understood yeah so it has to be very easy to understand which is why cliches roll off the tongue so easily because anybody who knows anything about the english language who's been around it a while and is of a similar generation or at least has had the same kind of education is going to in- instantly understand those cliches. Yeah. I mean, you can... Obviously, you can try to avoid them, like the plague. <laughs> um, yeah, I like but, what you did there. I like what you did there. But, you know, you can... You don't have to necessarily. I mean, obviously, if you want to be a more credible writer, you're probably going to try and find... You're going to create your own. Or you just use them but acknowledge them. Oh, yeah, that break uh, which is called lamp, lampshading when you when you draw attention to something you lampshade. All oh, right, so lampshading is is the writer's equivalent of breaking the fourth wall in the sense of the film. Well, you don't need to break the fourth wall to lampshade. 
Okay. But you, that is one way you do it. So breaking the fourth wall is when you, you basically are dropping all pretense of fictionality and sort of, right. you know, like when you have a book that states it, knows it's a book. That's breaking the fourth wall. The, the thing that comes to mind, I know, can, I know this but is... But you can then on. kind of go on to say, yeah. after the book acknowledges that it's a book, that it knows that you're reading this and thus knows that it knows that it's a book. <laughs> That's lampshading a fourth wall brick. That's brilliant. So, so I'm, I'm getting this in context because I watch more films than I read books these days, just from a time point of view. And the thing that's coming to mind immediately is Deadpool, mm. um, which I, does I break the fourth wall frequently. I, frequently, but the best one is when you mentioned about reality, acknowledging its reality, when they say we're going to take Deadpool to see the Professor, and he went Stuart or McAvoy, <laughs> which is the surnames of the actors that yeah. play, and 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 I just fell about at that point so yeah. th that's the sort of thing you're talking about yeah but in, in literary context I mean there's a great one in the comics where uh, where like the exposition boxes used to be in sort of yellow boxes uh -huh. and the sort of like there's some yellow exposition boxes and Deadpool just goes oh the yellow boxes I missed those <laughs> uh, there's that's... another one where he bumps into a character I, I think it's a sort of minor villain character called Bullseye yeah and it's like, oh, um, yes, he was De in Deadpool. There. Haven't haven't seen you in a while. And Deadpool immediately goes back. Yeah, issue twelve. <laughs> so okay, pages thirty to thirty-four, something like that. See, as we've gone in this direction, we'll go back to the dissertation thing in a second. But since we've gone in this direction, comics for a literary person, someone who's a writer, who's a who's interested in language, etc. What's your take on the graphic novel? And and that as a as an art form and as a as a serious reading writing, I'm probably not qualified. But like the thing was, is when I did English studies at uni, it was it was English studies. It wasn't linguistics. I didn't do linguistics at, at mm. uni. If I wanted mm. to do linguistics, I would probably have to go to Oxford or something like that. I was I was disappointed when I found out that Durham didn't do it. So if Durham doesn't do it, Teesside definitely wouldn't. Right. I mean, there was you taught we were taught elements of linguistics. There was um, a great little course called telling stories which was all about the mechanics of telling stories yeah. and as you can probably tell it was my favorite bit yeah um and i kind of forgot the rest i was i just wished it was all this um but um i think when you when you start to look at stuff like that you start to just appreciate it in all forms Right. Because that's a wonderful thing about storytelling. Now, that was one of the things that I quite liked, actually, about um, English studies, is we looked at other media. We did look at all other stuff. Right. So you could bring anything to the table. So you could bring a comic, you could bring uh, a film, uh, a novel to certain courses. You, you could do that. Mm -hmm. um, although I think partly that was because the head of the English at the time, that I at least resat my second year when I did some of that, was... Um, I think he was predominantly a media instructor. Right. He was a media okay. tutor. So right. he um, probably brought some of that prejudice with him. Right. And I say it's a prejudice, it's not really, but he, he de media is definitely more open to that than traditionally English normally is. Yeah. Graphic novels are a really, really good exploration of this. And there's lots of ways that you can look at it. For one thing, you can look at um, clever problem solving. Like if you look at um, American comics and graphic novels, around about the periods in which the American government were very most concerned in regulating comic material. Like, there was words that comics could not use mm -hmm. because of the lettering. So, like, for instance, they could not use the word flick 
mm-hmm. in case it look because it would when it was written down in that sort of very definite comic style where yeah. it was all capitals, someone might think that it said, "Look out, he's got a fuck knife." Yeah, and stuff like that. So, um, you can look at it the the sort of pragmatic ways that they got around the fact that you know, comics kind of can't really use the language that we can't use every day and you can look at TV in the same way because it's always mm-hmm. regulated yeah. like because a lot of people tend to complain um, about shows that have sex and swearing in it mm-hmm. my sort of perspective is is that I'm more incensed about the lack of it in soaps right okay because I'm sorry some of the events that you would be in in a soap opera is the, the exact moment that you would probably want to swear yeah, probably. And they don't. Yeah. That is really unrealistic. Yeah. Um, and I think it was Stephen Fry pointed that out and he was mentioning something about like how like they go to the trouble of having working electrics. <laughs> yeah. You know, running water in these TV sets. Yes. But they're using a false language. That's true. I mean, then, but then again, regulation, escapism—you don't want it to be reality because no. I mean, if you're watching reality, no, what's the, height, the point? I think that's the height of insulting to anyone who's interested in studying fiction because because people go, "Well, it's not realistic." It's just like, seriously, what do you think this is for? I mean, yeah. in some yeah. senses, though, it it is because like you can draw direct, direct parallels. This leads to a little rant, so I'm going to go with it. Go on, go on. Um, we like rants. Because one of the things that always sort of slightly annoys me about can I, can English I, as a study... Can I use the word ant rant? Yeah. <laughs> it's an that's, ant rant. That's been done before. Um, <laughs> okay. Ad nauseum. Um, <laughs> okay, sorry. There's a cliche. <laughs> Should we just have a cliche counter? I'll shut up now. Go on, continue, continue. Mm. Well, that's cliches done and dusted for today. Um, <laughs> we've left all stone unturned. Um, oh, spared no expense. Yeah, we'll hit the ground running. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, the, the, the rants, the rants. Because um, <laughs> English rant. students very much like to work on a sort of one-to-one basis quite often. Yeah. Of sort of like almost like it's decoding true meaning. Yeah. And a lot of people who are laymen also are guilty of this, and like. Because I still, because I've retained my interest in English as a subject, so like I follow a couple of things on like Facebook and stuff that, you know, do occasionally delve into, the sort of academic side, of the study of la- of, of writing and, and language, and I found some quite interesting things. Um, I mean, some of it's kind of worth dwelling on, and I found one example. I'll not sort of specify what it was because I, I don't think it's particularly fair to bring it up. Because I was sort of challenging this lass on something that she was saying. And it wasn't so much what she was saying. Because what she was saying was perfectly reasonable. And she had reasons and she had uh, sources to back it up. Mm -hmm. I was more sort of failing to kind of communicate. And what I should have probably just outright said is that, you know, because she'd studied sort of uh, language. And she felt that because she had, because she was talking about a particular author being anti-Semitic. Yes. And she had uh, letters of him being rude about Jews. And the, yeah. the book in question was supposed to be A Christmas Carol. Yeah. And she had various reasons for it. And one of them is, is that Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer is an Old Testament name. It could have some connotations with Jews. And obviously she had letters and correspondence of him being quite disparaging about Jews. Yeah. What she didn't have was him saying, oh, I know how to fix them. I'm going to write this short story and completely disparage them. Yeah. Um, 
So, and it also doesn't explain other inconsistencies in the narrative that you've got sort of Fezziwig, whose name is blatantly Jewish, and he's presented as a likable character. Yeah. You could argue that he's likable because he's accepted the Christian domination of society because he's accepted Christmas as a thing. But the, oh. it's it's a very conv- it's it's too, convoluted, isn't I it? I think it's probably too deep for our conversation. But the, the reason <laughs> that I bring the reason that I bring it up is not so much to deny it or to argue against argue with it or to argue against it. But one thing that I felt was missing from her sort of argument because okay, granted she was defending her position, so she probably yeah. didn't need to undermine her own position. Mm-hmm. But I just because she was mentioning she was doing this in the dissertation, I just hoped that when she wrote hers, she had some counterpoints to an argument because you're supposed to really do that yes. when you're doing a project yes. and the thing was is I was like where did Roland Bart- Bart's, Bart's go was, Roland Bart's is um, um, well, he's a philosoph- philosophical writer and it fits in because right. um, a lot of philo- philosophers have written about language right. Roland Bart's wrote a lot um, Umberto Eco most people probably know him for writing novels but he was also a youth Gone now. He died yeah. not too passed away not too long ago. I do know the name. Yeah, he wrote in the, in the name of the rose. Is his most famous yeah. uh, work, and obviously that's that was made into a film with Sean Connery. Yes, it's a sleuthing monk. Yay! So it's another fan, sort of semi fantasy sleuth Cad file, but better looking. Sort of, sort of like Cad file. <laughs> For readers of a certain suppose age it, group. I suppose it depends on whether or not you find Derek Jacobi attractive. I suppose, but um. Moving on. Yeah. Echo wrote quite a lot about like semiotics. I'm far too brain screwed at the moment to explain semiotics to people. I would just probably just just, just look it up. It's easier because I will fail to communicate it properly. But it's basically looking at, at how we interpret things. Um, so um, Echo's covered that. But Bart's was kind of like he's famous for a particular phrase, and a lot of people know it. It's called Death of the Author. So he's the one who came up with that. And the idea is is that basically, in principle, you can't really trust anything that an author says about their work. Right. Like, a very good example, and it will lead us back to our conversation about the fantasy stuff, because Tolkien was absolutely adamant that Lord of the Rings had nothing to do with World War Two. Yeah, I'll agree. Completely dis- fucking wrong. Of course it did. <laughs> yeah, cordially dislikes allegory. A man who survived... Well, it might have not even been World War Two. was it? Was World War Two or World one War I? Whichever, whichever one he was in. He spanned both, I think, in his lifetime. But, like, the very idea that that didn't influence his story mm. is... Well, of course, things can be allegorical without I mean, necessarily be, being intentional. You can't so. be—you can't be certain, yeah. but you can't just take an author's word for it. So, when an author is um, anti-Semitic in letters, you can't immediately go. Therefore, yeah, a Christmas Carol is anti-Semitic. Is meant to be anti-Semitic. Is meant to be deliberately anti-Semitic because yeah, yeah. he probably didn't even think that. I mean, no. he might have subconsciously set that up. Because he might have it, deliberately set it up. We don't know. And and, and people, now I think this ties in with an argument of any writing is a product of its generation, mm. a product of its, of its time. We've had this argument. Um, scholarly philosophers have said the same sort of stuff when you look at Bible I mean, studies. From a from a, from a from a particular from a writer standpoint as well as a, a study of the of the language. You know, I've got a vested interest in this, mm-hmm. and I've just described how my writing style is principally stream of consciousness. I don't consciously think about what I'm writing uh-huh. until it's on the page. Yeah. So, I mean, granted, I could spot a potential sort of red flag and maybe try to address it. But, yeah. I mean, I, 
I kind of don't entirely think about what I'm writing. I just mm. let it flow. And a lot of writers are like that. I mean, not all, but you know, it's very, very hard to kind of pin down what people are really thinking when they're writing. Yeah. And trying to sort of do a one-to-one -one on that basis. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can. It, I'm not saying it's it's fruitless. I'm just saying it's a difficult thing, and it's, it seems an awful lot of uh, language students are a bit too keen to be certain when it comes to that. Yeah. So when when you have you ever written something that you quite liked and it was a, a piece of prose, whatever it may be. And then put that wherever, be online or whether you've just kept it in a in a folder and then revisited it like twelve months down the line, read it, but at that point you're not really reading your own writing, you're reading fresh material because you've forgotten what you wrote. Um, I don't do that. Right, okay. Um I generally have an awful memory, but I have a very, very good memory for select things. Uh -huh. Like um it's mostly visual, but for some reason I can remember things that I've written. Right. I'm very, very good at retaining stuff. It's one of the ways that I've managed to make myself quite eloquent by accident. Because, I mean, I'd spent most of my life in comprehensives and in a working class area. There's no reason for me to sound anywhere near as sort of posh as I sound. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's basically because I've written things down and I'm very, very good at retaining what I write. Uh -huh. I mean, I I can never necessarily. I can't. I don't have perfect recall. I couldn't e immediately caught myself brilliantly, but it stays in the wetware, as it were. Mm -hmm. So like, I've I can remember almost bits of almost everything I've written. Mm. So it never it never hits you fresh. I suppose it's very different sometimes, when you sometimes. But it would have it, it, it. It's it's been things like group projects and stuff like that. But I mean, generally speaking, I'm quite aware of my style mm. and. Some writers hate their own work. I wish I was that person because I fucking <laughs> love my work. I love reading my stuff. But, I, it's, it's, but it's a story you want to read, also, isn't it? It's also part of my problem because yeah. I will sort of savour a chapter rather yeah. than finish another two. Uh, there's something that, uh, that, that, that this is setting off in my brain. The guy that I listened to quite a lot recently, Tim Ferriss, and when he looks at um, a slightly different question, but basically looking at um what will what will sell what will market in terms of writing in terms of book creation whatever um he is his own customer he scratches his own itch effectively and generally speaking applies this idea that if he likes something or is curious about something then he's not going to be the only person in the planet that that is doing that i still think uh, that's the i still think that's the best way to make anything mm. So you kind of you're writing for yourself, aren't you? In a sense, you are your own audience. Mm. Um, is that what gravitated you towards fiction? Then write what you know, write what you consume. Kind of stuff. Yeah, I wrote things to read to myself. Right. I'm an only child. That probably explains a lot. Um, <laughs> There's another trope. Uh, only child. Very few friends. Um, I got into various other hobbies through similar things because, like, one thing I used to collect a lot of board games. Yeah. Never had any friends come over and play them. So I used to invent games with board games to play. Right. So, and also when I was a kid, I had an awful lot of toys, but no friends to play with the toys. Right. So instead of, like, making, um, sort of, instead of, like, I, I inventing games to play, I would make narratives. So I would tell stories with my toys. Got you. And yeah. part of the reason why I did that was because, 
Well, I, I was going to say, uh, I'm, I'm slightly scientifically inclined by yourself, so I'm going to correct myself a little bit after I say this, but my dad would tell me stories. Yeah. And he'd make them up. Right. I mean, I, I don't know if I could do it as well as my dad, because my dad's very good at voices, and I'm not. I can't do impressions at all. But my dad used to do all sorts of stories. It's kind of sad, really, that it never went into writing, because there's a series about the royals that was sort of like subversal subversive and they had caricatures of them yeah and i watched this and didn't laugh because uh-huh. it wasn't very funny but part of the reason why i wasn't impressed is that my dad used to do that right my dad would tell me stories about the royals yeah and do silly stories with them yeah and his is his version that he used to tell me on a night was about 100 times more funnier than this tv show <laughs> partly you. partly because Philip would uh, not Philip. Charles would be constantly conspiring to kill his mother, yeah, so that he could get on the throne. Yeah, <laughs> I should introduce you to another podcast guest, a guy called Max, who's writing a. Um, he he detests um, the genre of police detective crime, Morse and that kind of stuff. He doesn't really like it. Detest is probably a strong word, but what he's doing is he's writing a a, um, a novel at the minute, which is a comedic takedown of that and the main protagonist is a detective called Marmaduke Bumstain who is based in Teesside uh, so I, that's I, another one of my fish eggs actually is, yeah. a, is a parody parody detective novel uh, and you, should, you two should collaborate I think mm, it'd be phenomenal I've got like I've got <laughs> a character who's basically she's a um, a hospital doctor yeah called Dr Alice Watson I've got a Dr. Watson. You've got a, a Dr. Watson and Alice. And she, basically it. she gets invited to this really eccentric party and it's all people involved in crime and then there's murders. Oh. And the idea is it's kind of sent, sending up that very Christie because basically she's going to get there and it's going to transform into a very Christie era. Right, okay. What um, TV tropes calls Christie time. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of vaguely 30s to 50s yeah, yeah. sort of thing sort with of. art deco thrown in yeah and um well the visual cues i had that kind of idea i, I think with detective stories we could talk about at length because I, I know quite a bit about it yeah although i would say the best thing to do is probably just find dr lucy worsley's um not a uh, not novel a uh, book a very british murder and I'm sure she did a TV show that corresponded with it, where she uh, and she basically tells you the history because mm. she's a historian. Um, she tells you the history of novels uh, of detective stories. Right. And it, it's, it's got an interesting evolution, but the thing with detective stories, the thing that I sort of found sort of interesting about it is, for me, the skill is not necessarily in telling stories. It's all about finding finding clever ways to have people who can solve lots of mysteries. Because mm. one of the things. Like, because they started off consulting detectives, but that's been done to death, so you can't really do consulting detectives anymore. You can, but, like, you've got to find a particular niche, so you've got mm-hmm. something crazy like Monk. Yeah. You've got the obsessive-compulsive detective yeah. who figures out it's a murder <laughs> because, um, oh, you know, there's a there's a guy on a dumb waiter and he's, he's strangled to death and it's, a, it's an accident, isn't it, Monk? Oh, no, no, it's murder, because, look, every metal object is pointing towards the centre of the floor. <laughs> and you, you... <laughs> yeah. so obviously there's a huge electromagnet underneath it or something like yeah, that yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. but like the the best ones are, like the worst ones is something like Jessica Fletcher uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. She's a fucking serial killer. <laughs> who's, who's spend, whose entire career is about wrongfully convicting, convicting the wrong people of her crimes. <laughs> her crimes. There's no way a novelist could be in that many murder situations. I'm sorry, it's bullshit. She's clearly killing everyone and blaming someone else. Murder, murder she committed. Murder she did. Murder she committed. Murder she hid. <laughs> oh, boom! Okay, I like it. I like it. It's so better. It is. It's better. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna introduce you to Max. Let's, let's pull this back to your dissertation. You mentioned your dissertation. Oh, because well, because basically it's all about sort of recognition of how, like, basically how narrative can't really fail to not have tropes. Right. Okay. Uh, so I'll define tropes first. Yep. So tropes are basically narrative devices. Um, there's a website I've already mentioned called TV Tropes. Um, you can go on it if you like, but it ha- it com- that site always comes with a warning. It's a it's a page on the TV Tropes page, yeah. and it's a wiki style, so it's kind of like Wikipedia, yeah. but it's um, unedited by the public. But it's basically it'll have a trope, and then it has a huge array of pages below of various different media and examples of that trope in action in those various different medias and it will have specific examples yeah. so in the comic section we'll have Batman or Spider-Man yeah. relating to a particular uh, trope yeah uh, but the warning is TV tropes will ruin your life and it kind of will because for one thing once you start seeing tropes you don't stop seeing tropes yeah so if you don't really want to have your stories ruined forever by constantly analysing them like because I've done a lot of this I've got a very disgusting habit <laughs> of watching murder mysteries or watching films that have twists in them and seeing the twists coming from a mile away yeah. because I know how they're set up. Yeah. Because I look for the setup tropes. Yeah. And I see them and I'm instantly switched on. It's like I know. Yeah. I, I came to Agatha Christie later in life uh-huh. after TV tropes to some extent. I think I'd written, written, read some of her stuff before but didn't really remember it too well. But mm-hmm. I. Um, but I caught bits on the TV, so obviously I'd say I pretty much knew everything Poirot because I I don't think, I don't think there's very many that David Suchet didn't manage to do, of the Poirot stories. But like mm. Marple, I didn't go out of Russia my out of my way to watch. But anyway, I saw that version of a mirror cracked on the telly, and I'd cracked it in the first ten minutes. Right. Because there's a particular scene. I'm not going to spoil it, but there's a particular moment, and everybody knows it because it's kind of. It's where the title comes from, because it's the mirror cracked from side to side. It's a quote from Macbeth, I think, actually. I think it's from right. Shakespeare play. It might be Hamlet, actually. Okay. But it's but Miss Marple is solving a mystery she's not at, because a person dies, and it won't say who the person is. A person dies, and a famous in a famous actress's house, yeah. and she has a facial expression that suggests that she recognises someone in the room who maybe tried to kill her. Right. And I'm not really spoiling much by saying that because that's a big part of the big linchpin yeah. of the plot. Yeah. But the facial expression is described by this court and Miss Marple immediately gets it because basically her friend was at the party and she uses this analogy yeah. because they'd seen the play and it was that kind of facial expression. Right. And it's a clever little device and if you figure out where it's going, you can basically solve the mystery immediately. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I particularly like people like Agatha Christie. I think Agatha Christie is the best at detective stories because I think one of the most horrible cliches of detective stories is detective stories where they make it so that the entire point is for you to not figure it out. Yeah. 
I fucking hate that. <laughs> so particularly common in like American stuff, like all the horrors used to do it, like Scream. So yeah. you knew immediately who did it because who had the least screen time? It's them. Yeah. Or there's there's a variation on uh, Midsummer Murders. It's who's got the least screen time and who looks like has drawn the biggest check. Yeah. Oh, is there an actor there who's quite a vaguely well-known festival that you've seen in a lot of things <clears throat> that has a sort of slightly above average yeah. acting acting what, pedigree than what, a lot of than everyone else in the cast. Why in this? It's fucking them. <laughs> it's the red shirt syndrome. Ooh, they're, they're like really famous and they've only been on screen for five minutes. Well, why do you think that is? They're the fucking murderer. Thank you, Midsummer Murders. Yeah. Spend more time trying to hide the solution than present yeah. you with actual clues that you can use. Yeah. yeah. And this, it, it, like, it's no surprise that detective fiction has been sent up so many times. It's so common. There's um So this was this was part of your planned sort of dissertation kind of thing. Well well as a side side shoot and because we were talking about particular story, we've yeah. gone off on one. But yeah. the idea is, <laughs> is that, again. Yeah. But the idea <laughs> is is you can't help but analyse text. So one of my possible dissertation things, I was looking at the idea of doing nonsense. Right. So nonsense poetry. Yeah. You take something like Jabberwocky. So if I mention Jabberwocky, I think everybody, certainly of our age and our age and pro- I don't know about younger, but I, almost anyone who's been through a British education system, Twas Brillig and the Sliver Tours, is already yeah. rumbling in the back of their head. Yeah. It was Gary and the Gimble and the Wave, etc. Yeah. The fact is, is that everybody's read that poem and everybody has some meaning from it. Yeah. Even though it makes no bloody sense. And the irony is, is because a lot of people think, oh, well, it's entirely deliberately supposed to be that you know, it's open to interpretation. Well, no, it's not, because it's from, it's from Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. Uh-huh. And they tell you how to interpret it, because that's all about how you kill the snark, I think. or kill It might even be killing the... I think there was something along those lines. It's a long time since I looked at it. So yeah, I, I haven't really read Lewis Carroll in a long time. and I, I kind of get a bit creeped out reading Alice in Wonderland, having known the history behind how it's written mm. and the very likelihood that Lewis Carroll may, may be a sort of Jimmy Savile type mm. uh, because he had a very unhealthy obsession with a 12-year-old girl where they met on a boat called Alice. So it kind of darkens the uh, whole thing, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's... <sighs> I don't know. I mean, he was a mathematician, so he probably just was a bit weird. You never know. It could... yeah. But... Um, it, it, I'd still think Jabberwocky is is a brilliant thing, and if you look at it from from just out of context, both in terms of the book and in terms of the man, and you just see it, it it's just a thing that you can't help but make sense of. Yeah, it's the same with all nonsense. Like nonsense, it's like the Ipsum Prosorium stuff that's on yeah. websites and stuff that just fills. It, it's nonsense that looks like text but isn't. Yeah. Because it follows certain yeah. rules. I mean, they were. I mean, to be honest, like nonsense is just like an offshoot of crazy art, art stuff like, um, the Dadaists and crazy shit like that. And mm. um, because I mean, everybody knows about the urinal and the unmade bed, the Tracy Emmons, yeah. which was probably bed, yeah. inspired by Dadaist stuff. Yeah. I would imagine, but yeah. like modern art, and people go well. What's the point of it? And it's kind of that thing. I think that's the problem. Because I don't dislike modern art, but I don't like it at the same time. Uh-huh. And I think that's probably the right attitude to have to art. 
It's. It, I think you just have to interpret it and observe it. Yeah, but you can't not interpret it. That's the kind of the point that I'm making. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. You, you're going to engage with it because that is entirely how it is, and that's kind of what art is for. Yeah. Is to play with that. Yeah. And to make you go places, and that's the and in my opinion, the best modern art makes you think, mm-hmm. and generally the best way to do that is to be abstract but not too abstract. I've seen some very abstract stuff that looks pretty and like you hear the description of what the name is and go well I've got no connection to that whatsoever Right. so uh, it's not for everyone but like one of the things that sort of the reason that I sort of bring it up is that this is we have a very 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 fraught bit of wetware Steven Pinker said that language is the stuff of thought I -hmm. think he's even got a book called that right uh, the stuff of stuff of thought is the book. Um, incidentally, as an aside, probably the most credible sort of interpreter of linguistics is probably Noam Chomsky, and Chomsky is difficult to read. So if you want to get a sort of translation, Pink is a good place to go. Right. And the language instinct is the book you should read. Right. But. Um, Sort of, the fact is, is that language can't help but develop and it can't help but go in a particular direction and you can't help sort of look at things. And we're very flawed. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of like, you know, it's all about, so it, it's similar to our survival instincts. You look in a piece of grass and you hear a bit of a rustling and you think it's a creature about to attack you, probably a tiger, you know, mm-hmm. something horrible that's about to attack you. If you live in suburban London, you probably think it's a, it's a... And you know, and you think it's either like um, an animal with rabies or a, a sort of mugger with a knife. Mm-hmm. Um, if you live in Africa, you'll probably think it's a lion or a cheetah. Or depends, depends where you are. Something big with paws and claws. Yeah, yeah, it's something yeah. contextual to to your situation, but it's still irrational. Yeah, it's completely mm-hmm. irrational, but it it benefits us that it's irrational because we will react to that assuming the worst. Yeah. And that's probably kept us alive better than if we think it's nothing. Yeah. Because it's probably better to hedge your bets. But it's also like you can see sort of how the downsides of this. Um, there's a psychologist called Skinner who like experimented on pigeons. Yeah, behavioural theories and stuff. Yeah, and he basically mm-hmm. he, he demonstrated the pigeons had superstition because they would react, they would recreate an action they were doing when random trigger was dropped. Because they would figure that the action that they were doing was the thing that would trigger the seeds to come. Yeah. So it's that kind of stuff. And yeah. the fact is, is that that's, we've kind of got a faulty wetware and that's how we see the world. We see the world through very sort of screwed up perspectives. Yeah. And part of the reason why we look at the world in the way that we do, the reason why stories aren't too varied, part of the reason is, is because we've grown up with them. Mm. We've grown up with the seven basic plots and that's what we expect stories to be. So yeah. they have to be. Because that's what we expect, right. and that's how we think. We think in narrative so much, yeah. and that's predi- partly because that's what that's how our language has worked. You know, that is how it, how it works, and it's there's a lot of commonality within it. And um, Joseph Campbell found a lot of this out when he uh, looked at sort of mythology. Mm-hmm. He wanted to write the ultimate American novel, and he sort of went away with the Quran and the Bible and a lot of American novels. He started reading them and started to realise that there's an awful lot of patterns. Yeah. Now, why is that important for me to mention? Well, one person in particular read Joseph Campbell's 
a hero with a thousand faces novel and he took the ideas from it and he made a series of films Mm -hmm. that man was george lucas the films were Star Wars, <laughs> the highest-grossing films in history, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Probably easily the most successful franchise that ever has existed. Aww. I mean, let's face it, Disney bought it for how much? Right, it's worth... And the, the fact is is that he used it on... Those, he took those very, very basic principles. I'm about to ruin Star Wars for all your listeners. Go on. It's the most cliché soap opera thing. So it's got every cliche in it. There's ring theory and all sorts of stuff going on in that. In the first chapter of, I think I can't remember if it's the first or the second chapter, but I think it's probably the second chapter because I think it's, well, it's the. Are we now we going with the original three? Are we going through the original three? The original three. The don't, original. We don't talk about the prequels here. Right. Okay. Um. <laughs> Just in case there's any any doubt, we'll remove that problem. And we're talking about the originals before Lucas fiddled with them and added those stupid scenes yeah. like hand shooting first and fuck that. Uh, not shooting first. Hand always shoots first. Hand shot first, the end. <laughs> Literally, all Star Wars co- probably could have been that would have satisfied me. Grado turning up. Yes, I bet you have. <laughs> Credits. It's fine. He's always Initiative that's, Seven. That's X-wing. A, that's a that's a great film. X Wing Two Point Han is always Initiative Seven. Yeah, go on. But um, <laughs> but anyway, like in the second second or first chapter, yeah. Um, one of the examples that Campbell uses is the Minotaur and the Labyrinth. Yeah. Now, if you think about it, if you think about it very deeply, you've got a bunch of heroes going into the Death Star. In maze of corridors, yeah, and there's a really nasty thing in it that kills someone, yeah, called Darth Vader. I mean, that is basically the Minotaur and the Labyrinth, yeah. and they escape it. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's played with. It's played with, yeah. but it's the same idea. Yeah, and the fact is, is that whether or not Lucas consciously wrote it like that, it might have just been in the back of his head. But that's just how it works. Mm. And the fact is, is that why do people engage with the most? sort of what we would call the cliche and the most straightforward. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's just because people are comfortable with it. Mm. It's what we know. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes back to um, it comes back to um, Pratchett saying that cliches are useful. I mean, let's just look at his Discworld series. I mean, he has got a very original series, but at the same time, he is just taking the piss out of every fantasy trope mm. and every sci-fi trope and mm. every modern humanity trope that mm-hmm. you can find in there I mean if you take an individual novel it's a play on all sorts of things he's took the piss out of virtually everything Shakespeare mm-hmm. well I would argue the weird, the weird weird sisters the plot of Shrek 3 but done better <laughs> and Shrek 3 probably ripped it off and I wouldn't be surprised yeah um, well I'll tell you what I reckon that that's there's loads of thought paths that we can go back round with those there's mm-hmm. bits and pieces that we haven't really covered in this no. episode not Are a lot of linguistics for... really well the thing a little is, bit these conversations are always organic they're always a little bit of a story thing as you've just proven so would you be up for coming up and doing coming back and doing another oh, one? Oh, absolutely yeah brill and the excuse to talk i like the sound of my own voice <laughs> well, well um it's been great fun actually that is that was a real fun one to record so cheers for coming on no and we'll pick this up Another in another episode. Any more questions you want to ask? Who wants us to get in the car? 
and go where? 50 years from now, when you're looking back at your life, don't you want to be able to say you had the guts to get in the car?